Chapter 61 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sverre Sigurdsson and the Birkebeiner. Erling Skakke's harsh regime and his attempt to exterminate all descendants of Harald Gille created a most determined opposition to his rule and brought new forces into the field against him. Many had no choice but to resort to armed resistance in their own self-defense, for although they were convicted for no wrongdoing, they knew that Erling was plotting their destruction, and with their band of followers they sought refuge in mountains and forest, where they led a life almost like brigands in constant want and danger. They were called Berkebeiner, birch legs, because they were sometimes forced to wrap their feet in birch bark for want of shoes. In their fight against the tyrannical Erling and the puppet king Magnus, the Berkebeiners stood forth as persecuted patriots, who under the guidance of an extraordinary leader brought about a revolution, and revived the lost ideal of a united and independent Norway. The Berkebeiner first rallied around Øystein, a grandson of Harald Gille. He was small and fair-faced, and was nicknamed Mela, i.e. Maiden. Jarl Berger Brosa, who was married to Brigida, a sister of Oystein's father, promised to aid him and furnished him with both men and money. Oystein and his men spent two years in Viken and neighboring districts, and in 1176 he sailed to Nidaros, captured the city, and was proclaimed king. He had assembled an army of 2,400 men, and with this force he crossed the mountains into southern Norway. But in January 1177, King Magnus Erlingsson met him at Rie, where Oystein was defeated and slain. His followers were scattered, and many of them sought refuge across the Swedish border. A more formidable leader now appeared on the scene to champion the lost cause of the Birkebeiner. This was Sverre Sigurdsson, who claimed to be an illegitimate son of King Sigurd Mund. The Sverre saga, which gives a full, though not impartial, account of King Sverre's life and deeds, states that Unas Kambari, a brother of Bishop Hroy, Ro, in the Faroe Islands, married a Norse wife named Gunhild in the reign of the sons of Harald Gila. She bore a son who was called Sverre, and he was thought to be the son of Unas. When he was five years old, he was sent to the Faroe Islands, where he was reared by Bishop Froey, who educated him for the priesthood and ordained him as a priest. Sverre did not know who was his real father until he was twenty-four years of age. At that time his mother Gunhild went to Rome, where she made the confession that Sverre was not the son of Unas, but of King Sigurd Mund. This confession was laid before the Pope, and she was commanded to inform her son of his real parentage. She returned to Norway and sailed thence to the Faroe Islands, where she told Sverre that he was King Sigurd's son. The next year he went to Norway to see what he could do, spoke with the king's bodyguard, and learned to know the general sentiment, but he did not disclose his plans or his identity. At last he made his way through Gautland to Jarlberger Brosa, where he arrived three days before Christmas, weary and exhausted. The Jarl's wife, Brigida, was a sister of Sigurdmund, and he confided his troubles to her and Jarl Brosa, but they would not help him, because they had promised to support Oystein Mela, his cousin, and because they had heard that Erling Skaka had sent this young man to them in mockery. But Sverre stayed with them during Christmas, and spoke to them constantly about his plans. After Christmas he went to Vermland to visit Sigurdmund's daughter Cecilia, the wife of Folkvid Lagmand, and she received him with great joy. 
Rumors had already reached him of Oystein Mela's defeat and death, and the Berkebeiner, who had learned that Svera, a son of Sigurd Mund, was staying in Vermland, sent messengers to him and asked him to be their leader. At first he refused, because the Berkebeiner were small, disorganized bands in want of everything, but when they threatened to kill him to gain King Magnus's goodwill if he did not join them, he consented. With a band of seventy men he started for Viken in southern Norway, and the number increased on the march till he had 420 men. A thing was called, and the Berkebeiner hailed Svera as king, though he was opposed to assuming the royal title under so unfavorable circumstances. He soon resumed his march, following the Swedish side of the border to Trindelagen. He kept strict discipline, and forbade his men to plunder. On these weary marches he was deserted by all but his most resolute followers, so that his little force again dwindled to seventy men. With this small band he suddenly appeared before Trondheim, but the city was well garrisoned, and the commanders marched against him with a force of 1,450 men. Svera retreated, but bewildered them with circuitous marches until he had secured some reinforcements. He then attacked them in a position well suited to his tactics, and won a decisive victory. He seized the ships in the harbor, and defeated several small squadrons which were coming to join the fleet in defending Trondheim. King Magnus's lenderman fled, the city surrendered, and Svera was received by the people in festive procession to the chiming of bells. He assembled the Erething, twelve representatives from each of the eight Filker, and was proclaimed king of Norway according to St. Olav's law, that is, according to the old law of succession which did not exclude a king's illegitimate son from the throne. The law of 1164 was not recognized, and King Magnus would be treated as an usurper. Archbishop Oystein Erlendsson, who is not mentioned in connection with these events, must have been absent from Norway at this time, a circumstance which probably enabled Sverre to seize Trondheim. The rumors of the events in Trondelagen had reached Magnus and Erling, who hastened with their fleet northward along the coast. Sverre did not await their arrival, but marched across the mountains into Gudbrandsdal and advanced to Lake Musen, where he found Magnus's lenderman stationed with 1,400 men and 18 ships. He did not venture to attack them, but sent a detachment to the Ransfjord. The vessels on that lake were seized, and the local forces defeated. But Orm Kongsbrother, Magnus's chief lieutenant in southern Norway, was advancing from Viken with a strong force. With great difficulty, Svera succeeded in transporting some of the small vessels overland from Ransfjord to Mjösen. With these, he attacked the Lendermand, surprised and defeated them, and captured all the vessels on the lake. All the districts of Oplanena now submitted to him, but as his force was so small that he could leave no garrisons, he was unable to hold permanently any of the territory which he had won. For some time, this indecisive guerrilla warfare continued with forced marches and daring exploits, in which Sverre proved himself a peerless leader, but his forces were too small to risk a decisive engagement, and his daring ventures represented no substantial progress. King Magnus and Orm Kungsbrother, who had united their armies in Viken, soon compelled Sverre to withdraw from Uplanena. In the winter of 1177, he crossed the mountains in an effort to capture Bergen, but the city had been warned. A fleet was patrolling the coast, and at Voss an army confronted him which he could not hope to cope with. He had no choice but to retrace his steps across the snow-covered mountains. For weeks they struggled through the pathless wilds without fire or shelter. Horses and military stores were lost, and many of his men perished from cold or exhaustion before they finally reached the settlements in Valdres. 
but even here he could not dare to tarry, as all avenues of escape might be cut off. He continued his retreat to Osterdalen, where he camped during Christmas, but when he learned that Erling Skakke was approaching, he withdrew across the Swedish border. Sverre began the campaign of 1178 in Jämtland, where he forced the Jams to swear allegiance to him. It seems to have been his plan to secure a base of operations from which he might attack Trondheim, which again had fallen into the hands of King Magnus and Archbishop Eystein, but he entertained no great hope of success. When he reached Namdalen, a district north of Trondheim, he assembled his men and discussed the situation with them. Three courses, he thought, now remained open. One, to make a voyage north to Hologoland, obtain friends and ships, and then sail south to Bergen to see if he could win a victory over his foes. The second course, to leave the land and sail to the Western Isles, where there were good prospects, he considered, of obtaining support. The third course, to go on a plundering expedition to Ireland or other Western lands, for he was of the opinion that the popularity of King Magnus and Erling Jarl would grow less the longer they ruled over the country. But at present, he said, their power is great, and to contend with them will be a hard matter. The Birkebeiner would not listen to Sverre's advice, but thought that they could capture Trondheim now as easily as they had done before. But Archbishop Oystein was at home, and urged the Trunders to resist the Birkebeiner to the utmost. I have been told, he said, that their numbers are few and their ships small. The men, moreover, are in an exhausted and wretched condition. It befits not Yemen and merchants to give up their clothes or goods to such thieves and evildoers as Sverre has scraped together. King Sverre risked the attack, but he suffered a crushing defeat and narrowly escaped losing his life. After this mishap, he again sought refuge in the mountains, but marched slowly southward towards Viken. When King Magnus heard of the approach of the Berkebeiner, he hastened to meet them with a strong force. Sverre, who saw that he could gain no further support until he gained a victory over his opponents, told his men that he would rather die now in an honorable battle with King Magnus than to be constantly driven from pillar to post. At Herta Bridge, he resolutely attacked King Magnus's forces. Both the king and Orm Kungsbrother were wounded, many of their men fell, and they retreated from the field. Shortly afterwards, he also succeeded in destroying a part of King Magnus's fleet at Konghella. These successes inspired his men with new confidence, and he stationed himself in Viken, where he could obtain both provisions and reinforcements. From this time on, his fortunes began to mend. In the fall of 1179, he returned to Trondheim, where he defeated the forces of King Magnus, captured the city, and took ten ships. But this victory was in no way decisive. The great leaders, King Magnus, Erling Skakke, Orm Kongsbroder, and Archbishop Hoystein, were staying in Bergen, and when they heard of Sverre's success, they collected a large fleet with which they intended to attack him as soon as the new campaign should open in the spring. When winter was passed, Sverre sailed southward with the fleet which he had collected, but off Stadt he met Magnus, Erling, Orm, and Eystein with so overwhelming a force that the only question became how to avoid falling into their hands with the whole fleet. To save himself, Sverre steered for the open sea. In a fog, his pursuers lost sight of him, and as they were unable to determine what course he had taken, Orm, Kongsbroder, and Eystein were sent with a part of the fleet to protect Bergen, while King Magnus and Erling proceeded to Trondheim. Sverre was already in the city when they arrived, but they landed without opposition and took up a position in the Kalviskind, a peninsula formed by the river Nied and the sea, while Sverre held the opposite bank of the river. 
After some fruitless parleying, Sverre marched away, and the rumor spread that he had retreated into the mountains. So confident was Erling Skakke that he would not return, that he allowed his men to feast and drink in the town, and did not heed the warning of his lieutenants that he should keep good watch. Sverre, who well knew the significance of the combat now imminent, had hastened into Guldal to collect reinforcements. On the night of the 18th of June he returned to Trondheim. He reached the city at daybreak, halted a few moments, and addressed his men, telling them how much depended on the battle which was to be fought, and what they might gain if they were victorious. I will now make known to you what is to be gained, he said. Whoever slays a lendermand, and can bring forward evidence of his deed, shall himself be a lendermand. And whatever title a man shall cause to be vacant, that title shall be his. He shall be king's man who slays a king's man, and he shall receive good honor beside. King Magnus's sentinels had noticed the approaching Birkebeiner, and the war trumpets called the men to the standards. The first onset was so fierce that Erling's men were forced backward. His standard was cut down, and he received a halberd thrust into his abdomen, and fell mortally wounded. King Magnus's forces broke into disorderly flight. In rushing past, Magnus noticed his father. He bent down and kissed him, and said, We shall meet again on the day of joy, my father. Erling's lips moved, but he could not speak. Magnus had to flee for his life, and Erling soon breathed his last among his enemies. Magnus boarded a ship and sailed away from Trondheim. His defeat was overwhelming. Ten Lendermen had fallen, and half of his herd. The decisive battle between the two parties had been fought. Erling Skaka was buried near the south wall of the Christ Church, but his burial now lies inside the much larger Trondheim Cathedral, which was erected later. After the Battle of Nidaros, Magnus fled to Bergen, which was held by Archbishop Eustein and Urm Kongsbroder. Svera fortified Trondheim with palisades, and took special care to strengthen his fleet, knowing that this branch of the military service would be of the greatest importance in the future. Magnus and Eustein spent the winter in Viken, and the following spring they assembled again a large fleet and sailed to Trondheim to try conclusions with the victorious Svera. He proposed that they should make peace, that he and Magnus should rule as joint kings, but the offer was rejected. On the 27th of May, 1180, another battle was fought at Heveldena in Trondheim, in which Magnus was again defeated. His army was torn up, six lendermen fell, and Magnus retreated to Bergen with the remnants of his forces. But his victorious pursuers followed close on his heels, and as he was unable to offer any effectual resistance, he abandoned the struggle and fled to Denmark. Archbishop Eustein also left Norway and sought refuge in England. King Henry II was no special friend of prelates, but he nevertheless treated the archbishop with due respect and assigned him the monastery of Edmundsbury for a residence. But he granted him but a small allowance, probably because he did not want to make it appear that he was supporting King Sverre's enemies. The great defeats had weakened the aristocracy, but had not destroyed their power of resistance. Not only could the chieftains still raise forces in nearly every district in the kingdom, but they did not hesitate to seek the support of the king of Denmark, who was willing enough to aid them as long as they were opposing the representative of a strong national government and an independent Norway. Sverre had indeed gained control of the whole kingdom, but his task was only rendered more difficult, as he had to defend it against the combined attacks of domestic and foreign enemies. In the spring of 1181, while sailing from Bergen to Viken, 
he suddenly encountered King Magnus and Orm Kongsbroder, who came from Denmark with a fleet of 32 large ships. His own fleet was much smaller, and he fell back to Bergen, where a bloody naval engagement was fought. By superior generalship he won the victory, but the battle was not decisive, as both sides suffered heavy losses. To know where the next attack would be made was impossible. Sverre hastened to Trondheim, garrisoned the city, and marched overland to Oslo for the purpose of defending Viken. But Magnus attacked Trondheim, overwhelmed the garrison, and captured Sverre's whole fleet of 35 ships. When Sverre returned to aid the city, Magnus sailed away to Bergen, and Sverre could not pursue him for want of ships. The situation had once more become critical, as everything which Sverre had gained in many hard-fought campaigns was lost by one fell swoop. But he wasted no time in mourning his losses. With characteristic energy he set about repairing them as far as possible. The necessity of strengthening the defenses of the city so that it could be held by a garrison of reasonable size had become apparent. He greatly strengthened the fortifications and erected a castle which he called Zion, generally known as the Sverreborg, where he stationed a part of the garrison. In the spring he caused palisades to be set up, so that a complete line stretched from the castle along the seacoast, then inland along the guild halls, and over the Eyra, Oiren, across to the river, and along the river to the quays. A catapult was fixed on Brateren by the sea, and a blockhouse was erected close to the sea. In the meantime, Sverre had collected twenty small vessels, and with a strong north wind he set sail for Bergen. Magnus's ships were riding at anchor in the harbor. He entered quite unexpectedly, cut the anchor ropes, and towed the fleet out into the fjord, while a vigorous assault was made on the city. King Magnus fled after a short resistance, and again sought refuge in Denmark. Archbishop Oystein, who had returned to Norway after a three years' exile, was in Bergen at this time. He tendered his submission, and was allowed to return to his archdiocese in Trondheim. The terms imposed by Sverre are not known, but it is quite certain that the constitution of 1164 was annulled, and that Oystein acknowledged him to be the rightful king of Norway. Archbishop Oystein's political career was now ended. For eighteen years he had helped to keep Magnus Erlingsson on the throne. He had suffered defeat, he had languished in exile, and the great work which he had dreamed of accomplishing in his new archdiocese had been interrupted. He longed to return to his beloved Nidaros, and the last few years of his life were devoted to the erection of the great Trondheim Cathedral. Before his exile, he had rebuilt and greatly increased in height the transepts of the Christ Church which Olaf Kyrre had erected. But during his sojourn in England and Normandy, he was greatly impressed by the beauty of the Gothic architecture of the magnificent cathedrals which were built during this period. When he returned to Trondheim, he raised the choir of the Christ Church, and built a new magnificent choir in the Gothic style. To this was joined the octagonal ladies' chapel, a minor choir, retro chorus. The main altar was placed in the choir proper over the grave of St. Olaf. The ladies' chapel contained a minor altar for the Virgin Mary in her image, richly ornamented with precious stones. Underneath the walls of the ladies' chapel is the holy St. Olaf's well, which according to the legend welled up on the spot where St. Olaf's body was buried. It is forty-four feet deep and walled with stone from the bottom. The reconstructed transepts, the new choir, and the ladies' chapel were probably finished when Oystein died in January 1188. 
The work of erecting a new nave in harmony with the other parts of the cathedral was not begun until 1248. After receiving aid from King Knut Valdemarsson of Denmark, Magnus returned to Norway in the spring of 1184 with 24 ships and a force which must have numbered about 3,000 men. At Fimreita in Norrfjord, a narrow arm of the Sognefjord, he met King Sverre, who at that moment had only 14 ships and a force not exceeding 2,000 men. The fierce battle which began in the afternoon of the 15th of June lasted till midnight. 2,160 men are said to have fallen, but Sverre was finally victorious. King Magnus perished together with the flower of the aristocracy, and Bergen and the districts of southwestern Norway, which had given him the most loyal support, hastened to tender their submission to King Sverre. After the battle, Magnus's body was brought to Bergen and buried in the Christ Church. Fair speeches were made over the grave. Nicholas Sultan spoke, a brother of King Sverre's mother, and one of the most eloquent of men. The king himself made a long speech in which he said, We stand here now at the grave of one who was kind and loving to his friends and kinsmen. Though he and I, kinsmen, had not the good fortune to agree. He was hard to me and my men, may God forgive him now all his transgressions. Yet he was an honorable chief in many respects, and adorned by kingly descent. The king spoke with many fine words, for he did not lack them on whatever course he was bent. The burial of King Magnus was put in careful order by King Sverre. Coverlets were spread over the tombstone, and a railing was set up around it. End of chapter 61